Hey gang, quick uh, update to the pod I recorded earlier today that you are about to listen to. In this pod, I talk about uh, waiting for guidance from ASCO or ASH or whoever. Uh, and after recording that, uh, I've since learned, via Twitter of course, that ASCO will be having a webinar about COVID vaccination and cancer patients at 3 p.m. Eastern uh, on the day this podcast is released, which may be... Uh, uh, later in the day, if you're listening to this on your morning commute on Thursday, or afterwards, if you're listening to it after the workday on Thursday. Enjoy. Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Oncofarm, the Bill Gatt College of Pharmacy. It is December 16th, 2020. And we are winding down, uh, at least my days here uh, in uh, the office, our makeshift uh, studios. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about uh, COVID vaccination in cancer patients. Uh, unfortunately, there uh, is not a lot that we know about this topic. Uh, so we're going to talk about what we know uh, in general. We don't know. Um, so we have, uh, here in the United States, uh, we have an emergency use authorization as of right now for the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, I think it's safe to say that is expected uh, for the Moderna vaccine coming uh, pretty soon as well. Probably, I would guess, Friday night, Saturday. It follows the same model as the Pfizer vaccine. Um, they are both mRNA vaccines, which uh, the Pfizer vaccine is the first mRNA vaccine that has received regulatory approval here in the States. Also mentioned the Pfizer vaccine uh, also re uh, received some version of approval in the United Kingdom and Canada. And so we'll start there with the, the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, the results of this were published uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, a week ago today. Uh, you can, the briefing doc, if you Google Pfizer vaccine FDA briefing, you'll find the documents there. Um, so I, briefly, I want to talk about this, and then we'll talk about largely the cancer patients. Um, and one of the reasons I want to talk about the, the vaccine itself is the mRNA, mRNA vaccines are a new technology. They are being studied as a cancer therapeutic as well, so we may hear more from these uh, in the future. But first, this is really an amazing scientific and technological, technological achievement um, to have these vaccines in less than a year. And I know that seems really, really fast. We'll talk about why that that maybe should not be considered to be uh, so crazy for this technology. So mRNA vaccine technology uh, kind of goes back to the 1990s is, is the origin story of this. Uh, and as we know, you know, uh, DNA is transcribed or translated to RNA. I can't remember the proper term. And then RNA, you know, goes out to the ribosome. The ribosome then takes that RNA and makes it into a protein, right? That's, that's how things work. Um, so this is a, uh, the way that this technology works is this messenger RNA that has the code for the coronavirus spike uh, that you've seen parodied in SNL or, uh, and you've seen in images, um, sticks out like a big flag on the virus. And the idea is if the immune system can see that flag, uh, it, can, uh, it can learn how to beat the coronavirus very quickly. So this mRNA is encapsulated in a, like a nanolipid particle and that's important because otherwise the mRNA would be rapidly degraded as soon as it's injected. So it needs to be in that lipid particle, and then it gets taken up by cells. Uh, then those cells uh, take the mRNA and they express the coronavirus protein. And they uh, either chop it up into little fragments or antigens that are expressed on MHC1 molecules on the cell surface, or they express the whole protein spike by itself. And then our immune system 
uh, sees that as a foreign antigen, whether it doesn't know if it's a virus, uh, a viral antigen, or a neocancerous antigen. Uh, but then it, it trains to, to, to fight it. So some of the, the nice things about mRNA uh, are that it actually can be developed, an mRNA vaccine can be developed must, must, <laughs> much faster than a traditional vaccine. So most of the other tra traditional vaccines we have, we just take the case of the influenza vaccine, these are typically live attenuated, meaning it's a real vaccine, but it's weakened, or it's a completely inactive vaccine or inactive virus. In both cases, you've got to get enough virus in a dose to give somebody, and growing virus in a lab is hard because a virus needs to grow in a host. It needs cells, and it's hard to replicate that in a laboratory. It's a, it takes time to do. Um, the mRNA vaccine doesn't require making a virus. It's just mRNA, and if you know one thing about nucleic acid sequencing and reproduction, whether it's RT-PCR or next-generation sequencing, go back 5, 10, 15, 20 years, we have made incredible technological advances in being very efficient at this technology. So you could make a whole lot of an mRNA vaccine very quickly, which is one of the reasons this whole thing got done in less than a year or about a year. You can do it really fast. Um, so I made the analogy on Twitter that the mRNA vaccine is kind of like email and you know these live attenuated or inactivated, inactivated vaccines are kind of like snail mail. So just because it went fast doesn't mean corners were cut or anything like that. It's just technology is a lot faster. Like if you want to publish a book today, you write a book in a word processing program, you email it to somebody, they publish it as a PDF online. It's not like you actually have to write it by hand and then copy it by hand and then typeset it in like a Gutenberg printing press. I mean, it's just the te as technology advances, things can happen faster. So that's, that's the good thing about the mRNA vaccine, all right? So we go and look at the, the, the phase three study that we have published in NEJM, 95% uh, effective, 94% effective with the, the Moderna vaccine. You all probably uh, know this. Um, some of the key points about the study, they did exclude people on immunosuppressant medication. Uh, that would include things like chemo. Uh, that would include things like treatment for rheumatoid arthritis, uh, high-dose corticosteroids, systemic corticosteroids. Uh, there is no mention at all that I can find in uh, anywhere with this uh, in, in the study, in the FDA briefing documents, in clinicaltrials.gov, if you were on an immune checkpoint inhibitor like nivolumab uh, or pembrolizumab, what happened to those folks? I wouldn't consider those drugs immunosuppressant. Uh, so were they included? We don't know. So a couple unknowns. We have no idea of the efficacy and safety of the vaccine in patients uh, receiving chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Uh, the FDA uh, EUA does have a warning statement, the prescribing information does say that the efficacy may be reduced in patients receiving immunosuppressants like cancer. And the Canadian UK uh, approvals or leaflets say something very similar. Uh, so to me, this says the FDA has not said you can't give it to these folks, they're just saying if you get it, we don't know. And in fact, the CDC guidelines have patients with cancer in like their one phase 1B or something like that. So the plans at this point look to be to try to vaccinate these folks uh, maybe on chemo because they, they are higher risk than the general population. Uh, so even if the efficacy is reduced, uh, it's a, kind of like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. A little bit of efficacy or slightly reduced efficacy from the vaccine now when we're in the biggest peak of the pandemic may be better than full efficacy two or three months later, or six or seven months later, 12 months later, when you're finished with chemo and your immune system's back to where it was. Okay, so that's one unknown is, is, the, is the efficacy. Uh, I think the safety in somebody receiving chemo is going to be just fine. I don't expect any harm. 
uh, while we're talking about safety, you know, this vaccine does seem to be, you know, very safe, uh, just local and flu-like symptoms afterwards. Maybe a little bit more flu-like symptoms than you would expect compared to like uh, the flu shot. Uh, and it's notable that those uh, reactions and symptoms are more prevalent after the second dose. That's a month later. Uh, so just to give you and uh, just to give you those numbers real quick, you know, with uh, say fatigue. Fatigue happened in about 47% uh, of folks uh, below the age of 55 after dose one versus 51% uh, with uh, the, sec the second dose. And those numbers are a little bit higher, sorry, a little bit um, uh, pretty similar in, in all age groups. But just to give you a comparison, uh, you know, fatigue is upwards of maybe one in five, like 20% with the flu vaccine. Uh, headache, one to 27% with the flu vaccine. Uh, that number is 25 to 50% uh, with the coronavirus vaccine. And the headache is more common in younger folks, uh, looks to be, which, which maybe suggests that, um, you know, these toxicities seem to be a little bit uh, worse in younger folks, which may suggest that older folks don't mount as much of the immune response. So we think it's going to be safe in our cancer patients. Will it be as effective? Uh, unfortunately, uh, we don't know. So one of the things that I think this comes down to, it, it's really hard to, to, to give medical advice, and, and that's not what I'm doing, but everyone should talk, you know, tell people to talk to their physician about this. It's like everything is in medicine or in life, it's a risk-benefit. Um, it's a risk-benefit analysis. So, you know, just imagine just randomly picking uh, a couple named Mary and Joseph. And, uh, and Mary has cancer. She's got lymphoma, and she's, she's on chemo. Uh, but Joseph doesn't. And let's say they, they, they have the ability and the means to mostly stay at home. And, you know, we're talking economics and not macro, microeconomics or monetary and like that. We're talking about scarcity and limited resource. And, and the vaccine is a limited resource now and people want it. I'd, I'd love to get it. We could debate the ethics of someone who can stay at home and isn't it, working in a COVID unit trying to get the vaccine before, you know, people in a nursing home or my sister-in-law, who's a physical therapist in a long-term care facility. Um, so there's a whole lot to consider, and, and we should be hopefully getting more guidance from things like ASCO, from people like ASCO and ASH. But imagine Mary, who's on chemo, and imagine Joseph, and imagine one of them can get, only one of them can get the vaccine. Does it make more sense to Mary to get the vaccine? Because if there's only one, she may not get full benefit from the vaccine. Um, but if she's mostly staying at home, uh, in and out of clinic, perhaps, um, but Joseph is the one who is still working because he needs to to maintain insurance coverage, at least in America. Um, Joseph is the one buying the groceries. Um, so Joseph may be the greatest risk to her from receiving uh, and contracting the coronavirus. So then maybe it makes more sense to Joseph, who has a competent immune system, to get it. These are questions that we don't know. And like I said, it's a risk-benefit analysis. If I think if you are a nurse working in a COVID unit and you're on, you know, month seven of adjuvant nivolumab for stage for high-risk stage three melanoma, you know, the benefit of the vaccine is probably greater than the potential risk of the vaccine because at least in theory, there's a risk that some of these mRNA vaccines can stimulate what's called a type one interferon response, which has been associated with, uh, with autoimmunity or autoimmune phenomena. And that's kind of the side effects we see from ICI. So we just don't know what would happen to those folks. So it's an individual risk benefit analysis. And this Sometimes that benefit can be peace of mind from, from getting a vaccine for some folks that may have anxieties about that. So unfortunately, there's a lot that we know we do not know about uh, cancer patients. 
Uh, I can just tell you, if, if I had cancer, was getting chemo, and I had access to the vaccine, I would get it. If I had access to the vaccine right now, I would take it. I would take this vaccine. I would take it. I would take the Pfizer vaccine here. I would take the Moderna vaccine there. In a, in a box with a fox, I take I take the vaccine whenever, uh, whenever I could. Um, so. Um, those would be questions, uh, you know, like I said, there are a lot of unanswered questions. And whenever there is an unanswered question, that means for those of you who are into this, there's an opportunity for, uh, for research and scholarship. So uh, I do hope that um, some folks like the, the Theravolt Registry out of Vanderbilt, who, who uh, got a whole bunch of folks on, with cancer, uh, enrolled into a registry just to see what happened with the folks that, that got COVID. I hope we'll see something like that for the patients with cancer and on cytotoxic chemo and immune checkpoint inhibitors to see what happens to those folks when they get uh, when they get the vaccine. Um, um, and uh, you know, I hope we see that. And if if you or someone or, or you know patients who are a little hesitant and they're not early adopters and they'd like to see how things go, I think that's reasonable. Based on what we see in these vaccines, if you look at the uh, the curves, they're not Kappa-Meyer curves, but you can see in both the Pfizer data and the Moderna data, the placebo group is a 45 degree uh, angle uphill of infection rate. It's completely linear, um, and about and the uh, the group in the vaccine follows the same curve for two weeks, and the curve takes a hard right turn, and instead of running at a 45 degree angle after two weeks, it runs at a 180 degree angle. It's completely flat, completely flat. Just amazing, amazing separation of curves. And, there, and you all probably know that, but the reason I say that is if there were a registry uh, of cancer patients on chemo and or immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, we probably would know pretty quickly with a sizable population, uh, you know, what the, the efficacy is gonna look like from those curves. Is it gonna be as good? Is it gonna be almost as good? Or is it gonna be nowhere near as good? Uh, and we would also get an idea of the safety pretty quickly in patients on immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, pretty quickly as well. So, uh, you know, if I had the means, I certainly would, would want to start a study and want patients to be on studies and want uh, physicians and prescribers to know about such registries. So I do hope that we see that. We Unfortunately, you know, it's, it's a great thing that we have this. It's very fast. It's a little bit like, uh, you know, an accelerated approval of a TKI where we don't have uh, information beyond... Um, a few hundred patients. We don't know about the drug-drug interaction potential. We don't know about people with renal dysfunction or hepatic dysfunction. So in oncology, we're kind of used to these unknowns and, and making our best educated guesses on science, but that's something that needs to be done between patients and their oncologists, in my opinion. Uh, so those are just my, my thoughts and opinions on this. Um, uh, it's exciting. Like I said, I, people have been asking all these healthcare professionals, you know, if you get the virus, will you take the virus? Absolutely, I'll take the virus. It's going to be the biggest public health effort of our lifetimes most likely to try and get as many people vaccinated as quickly as we can. So hopefully with a little bit of knowledge about this mRNA vaccine technology and about what we know, especially about the Pfizer study that's been published and the Moderna study that's very similar uh, in methodology, uh, we could at very least educate folks on, on how this vaccine works, how it's similar to say the flu shot what people are familiar with, how it's different, uh, especially the reason we were able to get it done so quickly not that I was involved, but we as society in general to get it done so quickly uh, because of this new technology. Um, and again, there are unknowns and we can't diminish the, un dis uh, dismiss the unknowns and just assume everything's going to be the same in, in our patient population. Um, but we, we should look for those answers and look for guidance from you know the experts, uh, which is not me in this. I'm not a virologist. I'm not a vaccinologist. I'm a, I'm a pharmacist. 
So uh, hopefully some of you, I've already seen pictures on social media of some of you uh, getting the vaccine. So great for you guys. Um, anyway, that's, that's all I have to say about that, as Forrest would say. Thank you for listening. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and OncoFarmPod. Um, or on Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And uh, we got one or two more episodes uh, left this year. Uh, one will be the best of 2020 episode. Uh, probably be short. All right. Thank you for listening. Until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.